I'm Leonard Lopate. Although LGBTQ rights have been a major topic around the world in recent years, you may be surprised to learn that a group of British and American writers, artists, and scholars openly and publicly welcomed diverse sexual and gender identities nearly 100 years ago. Nino Strachey's latest book, Young Bloomsbury, The Generation That Redefined Love, Freedom, and Self-Expression in 1920s England, explores a place and time when queer life blossomed. It's published by Atria Books and brings Nino Strachey to our show now. Welcome. Hi, great to be with you. You're related to early 20th century, the early 20th century writer and critic Lytton Strachey. In what way? Ah, well, he is a cousin, and to be absolutely precise, he's my first cousin four times removed, four generations back, but Strachey's are a tiny family. I think there's about 12 of us left in the UK today, so uh, we we proudly say all Strachey's are cousins. Well, the Strachey's have been a family of intellectual civil servants and politicians who can trace their roots back to the 1600s, so aren't you the last of the Strachey's to grow up at Sutton Court, the family's ancestral home in Somerset? I absolutely am, and it was a privilege and a joy to grow up in a place where Strachey's had lived so for so many hundreds of years, surrounded by incredible Strachey books, books mm. that they'd bought, books that they'd written, and books that they'd given to each other and inscribed and filled with their letters and outpourings of what they felt about reading, which was so important to them. So did that, uh, growing up there, give you access to unpublished family papers, things that uh, you might have used in working on this book? Absolutely. And it's been one of the great joys of, of doing the research for this book. And every time I reach out and pull a book off the shelf, a letter falls out and you <laughs> find something totally new and delightful. Uh, and often it's been about the, the world of Bloomsbury. And that's one of the things that led me into writing this book. What we call the Bloomsbury Group began around 1900 with uh, a number of British undergraduates at Cambridge University who went on with the addition of a few newer members to distinguish themselves in England's artistic and political culture from the early 20th century until World War II. How much of a role did Virginia Stephen, who was to become Virginia Woolf, play in the creation of the group? Oh, she was absolutely at, at the center of it. And I think I, I start off setting the scene of those early days of Bloomsbury when Virginia and her sister Vanessa set up home in London with their two brothers uh, in Bloomsbury. And they were a group of young people that their parents had died. It was quite rare to be able to, to live in a house independently when you had two brothers at university. And to be able, I mean, I think what we don't get a sense of now is how rare it was to be able to talk to young men unchaperoned at that date. Um, and Virginia and Vanessa were able to have these wonderful open conversations with their brothers and their university friends and talk about anything you could imagine in the world in a way that, that contemporaries simply couldn't. And they talked about everything from literature and philosophy and economic, economics to, to love and sex and you name it. In 1912, she married Leonard Wolfe, and in 1917, the couple founded the Hogarth Press, which published much of her work. And among the women, Wolfe 
had romantic relationships with was Vita Sackville West, who was also published by Hogarth Press. Uh, in this book, you explore a place and time when queer life blossomed, thanks in part to the group that orbited around Virginia Woolf. How close were they to each other? So, well, I think what was lovely to trace is the evolution of these you know, group of young people from before the First World War, who were probably really talking mainly to themselves uh, because they weren't you know, widely um, published or admired at that date and really how they reached a new audience after the First World War. Um, partly through vehicles like um, uh, Virginia and Leonard's Hogarth Press, but really through this interaction with a, a new younger generation who brought them into contact with different types of media, who took them into the popular press, into magazines like Vogue and onto the radio and even into to making home cinema. So really bringing them in tune with this new generation of people after the war who were probably you know, much less admiring of the previous generation because they had seen um, what had happened during the First World War uh, when the, uh, I think there was it, it, the, the phrase lions led by donkeys, essentially <laughs> young men being led to slaughter. And so they weren't admi so admiring um, of the previous Victorian generation and were ready to embrace something new and something iconoclastic uh, and to uh, live in a different way. But wasn't homosexuality illegal at the time? It absolutely was. And I think that's one of the striking things about this, um, uh, you know, the way that the Bloomsbury Group helped to nurture this new generation of queer young people, because the, here they found a, a place of safety. Um, this was a time when you had a, a conservative government where the Home Secretary was cracking down on acts of public indecency. Uh, and so in the 20s, if you were a young man wandering the streets of London at night, uh, you could be arrested. Uh, and even if you had something like a powder compact in your pocket, that could be interpreted as a sign of um, indecency and indecent behaviour. Uh, and you could be sentenced to three months hard labour. Weren't some of them uh, over the years sent to doctors to be cured? I mean, this, oh, was, so this is the time of, of Sigmund Freud, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it's a really interesting looking at the the different approaches taken by mainstream psychiatry and by the new uh, practice of Freudian psychoanalysis. And many members of Bloomsbury were closely involved in this, including uh, Lytton's brother, James Strachey, and his wife, Alex, who were the first British uh, translators of Freud, um, because homosexuality was seen as a mental illness at this date. Uh, and uh, families often encouraged young members of, of um, young Bloomsbury to go for treatment. Uh, and this could be, you know, frightening, like in, there was a German clinic where uh, young men like Eddie Sackville West were sent, where you had uh, what was called persuasion therapy and uh, painful injections designed to cure you of what was seen as a disease. Um, and other young men like Stephen Tennant, um, an artist, um, a member of the of young Bloomsbury was sent for, to a year's isolation in a psychiatric hospital um, uh, in the hope of, again, of, of, I put in inverted commas, curing um, his homosexuality. So how open could they be about their sexuality? We're, we're talking about some people who are now well, still well-remembered, Lytton Strachey, mm -hmm. Ian Forster, who are gay, Virginia Woolf and John Maynard Keynes, who were bisexual. How open could they have been? 
So I think it it would be safe to say that they could be open within their own circle um, and within their own homes. And I think that's a you know there's a, a really interesting reflection on safety and queer spaces. Um, the the Bloomsbury houses that they lived uh, in London are tall, thin, narrow houses. Um, and it just so happens that the spaces in which they held their parties, and these were often uh, late night queer gatherings where uh, men who loved men could meet women who loved women, uh, behave as they wanted. Their drawings were on the, rooms were on the first floor. <laughs> so if uh, a policeman was wandering the street, they couldn't let straight in through the window. Uh -huh. uh, at almost exactly this time in nearby Fitzroy Square, a young dancer called Bobby Brett lived in a basement flat and the police could look in through his windows and they spotted men dancing with men and they raided the flat and arrested everybody in there. Now, the the Bloomsbury group achieved on in a variety of fields. Uh, in literature, we have Virginia Woolf, E.M. Forster, art history, Roger Fry and Clive Bell, biography, Linton Strachey, Painting and decorative arts, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. International politics, Leonard Wolfe. And economics, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, were they celebrities at the time? I think it would be fair to say that they uh, reached that mass public audience only in the 20s. Um, although they came together before the First World War, um, they only one member amongst them, as E.M. Forster, actually reached any form of literary success before the First World War. It, their peak period was in the 20s. And I think Duncan Grant had his first solo exhibition uh, in 1920. Um, Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians was published in 1918, again, capitalising on that immediate post-war fervour. You had Keynes, uh, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, so, yes, they absolutely did reach a peak in the 1920s, but this was partly due to this exciting cross-pollination uh, and, and this sort of almost symbiotic relationship where they had were responding to the changing mood of the times. They were reaching an audience who was now receptive to the what they were producing, and they were interacting, as I said, with this younger generation of people who were tuned in to different ways to reach that new audience. Virginia Woolf committed suicide in 1941. Was her sexuality seen as a factor in her depression? I would have thought it was only one element of a, of, of a many-sided equation here. I mean, I think Virginia um, drew great uh, joy, Solis, not only in her own relationships, but in her ability to act as, a, as a, in really in a parental role to a series of young people who she was employing at the Hogarth Press as assistants. So, for example, the young uh, queer academic, Dady Rylands, uh, Lytton's uh, partner, or, or his thrapple, Rafe Partridge, um, and one of uh, Duncan Grant's uh, lovers. I mean, the, the list goes on. And so it's lovely to think of the way that, in fact, I describe her role as what we might describe today amongst the, the drag community as a den mother, that she was providing a safe space and a nurturing space where she could encourage the careers of these queer young people. And I think, if anything, that was incredibly beneficial for her mental health. So I'd, I'd only see it as, you know, in, in, in a many-sided equation. And your book is largely about these younger people 
you write that for the older members of the Bloomsbury Circle, interacting with these even more radical young people affirmed the progressive social and aesthetic transformation that they had begun. I think it absolutely did. And it really helped them to keep in tune with the feeling of the moment. I mean, this was a, a group of people who were mostly in their 40s. Um, after the First World War. And here they were interacting with a group of of young men and women in their 20s who were, if anything, bolder in their experimentation than the Bloomsbury Group themselves had been at an equivalent age. Uh, And where, I think, where where Bloomsbury had been felt confident about experimenting in private, this new generation were absolutely happy to experiment in public Mm -hmm. and in particular to make use of the popular press and photographers like Cecil Beaton, who created the most amazing imagery. And when we look at some of Cecil Beaton's photographs today, and we look at the wonderful and varied expression of gender identities in his photographs and the incredible use of costume, particularly that designed by Stephen Tennant, you can see why it produced such a a popular response at the time, uh, but also it, it gives a telling insight in, into how bold this generation was um, uh, and how um, confident they felt about expressing their identities in, in the public field in, in a way that probably older Bloomsbury members had not been before. And were the British intelligentsia of the time aware <laughs> of, of this? Well, it's extraordinary. You know, you, you, you use the, I think the phrase that comes to mind to me is, is really um, hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And you get hints of this in Evelyn War, for example, describing characters like Miles Malpractice, who uh, touched up their eyeshadow in public. You look at, at images, particularly of Stephen Tennant or of Dady Rylands, who was photographed by Cecil Beaton, dressed as the Duchess of Malfi. Um, and who uh, Virginia Woolf thought was one of the, the beautiful, most beautiful young men that existed. You look at these images, and today you immediately recognise what we would identify as non-binary identities. But at the time, they were seen much more in the ide- context of the bright young thing and of um, a fancy dress. And, and in fact, Cecil Beaton and Stephen Tennant were held up by newspapers as, as the ideal examples of the beautiful young men of today. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York. It's streaming live at WBAI.org and available on 99.5 on your FM dial is Nina Strachey, whose latest book is Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom, and self-expression in 1920s England. It's published by Atria Books, and I should point out it's got lots of wonderful pictures in it as well. Uh, he, uh, this uh, second generation uh, w- w- felt good because they, uh, they, uh, it provided them with a sense of surrogate extended family because their own families were often critical of their sexual and artistic life choices. Absolutely. And I, I mean, uh, you know, th- thinking back to the, the number of these young people who did undergo conversion therapy during that period, and this process was extremely expensive. So they were being supported in this by their biological families. When you think that their their uh, life choices were being seen either as mental illness or a disease, to find a group of adults 
who would not only accept your sexuality and your gender expression, but also nurture and encourage you in your chosen field. And it is a really broad range. I mean, if you're thinking of young Bloomsbury, you have artists, for example, like the sculptor Stephen Tomlin, um, who who had, uh, he was bisexual, was interested in relationships with men and women. So he sculpted Uh, the heads of both his male and female lovers. (laughs) He absolutely did. And I think it's a lovely, you know, uh, testament to the patronage and encouragement that he received, that you um, have commissions uh, from Lytton Strachey, from Duncan Grant, from Bunny Garnet, um, uh, from his American lover, Henrietta Bingham. So, as you say, his his male and female lovers, which um, in many cases have become the most permanent record of those figures. I mean, his most famous sculpture is of Virginia Woolf, um, and Woolf famously hated uh, being um, uh, painted or, or sculpted. She didn't like to be pinned down, as she called it, to pose. And and uh, she wrote to complain um, to one of Lytton's sisters, because Stephen was married to uh, Lytton's niece, Julia, that that she was being pinned down in, the, in, in Stephen it, Tomlin's rat-infested studio. But I think partly because Tomlin knew these people so well, knew how much they cared for him and supported him, really you get this incredible expression of personality and closeness through them. I mean, you get Virginia looks furious in her mm-hmm. sculpture, but it is it is conveying the honesty of her emotion. Um, and when you look at Tommy's sculpture of Duncan Grant, again, here is a man who is both his lover and an artist, and you get that sense of, of, of joyful celebration in the sculpture and in each of the pieces that Tommy produces. Yes, yeah, so an amazing ability to allow um, creativity that might have been curtailed otherwise, and that you see this across the group, whether that's in uh, young academics like Dady Rylands, who was employed by Virginia Woolf. Virginia um, not only employed in the Hogarth Press, she published his first book of poetry, which was called Russet and Taffeta, um, and it encouraged him in his, his career as an academic as well. And she and Lytton would come down to Cambridge regularly to um, look at his performances. He was very interested in, in Shakespearean performance and was directing others and Duncan Grant provided costumes. I mean, it's just cyclical that you know the amount of, of support and nurture that these young people could receive in order to pursue um, their creative careers. Well, you were talking about Stephen Tomlin's wife, Julia Strachey, who uh, obviously is related to you in some ways. Uh, so that that's a connection. But she was also weirdly related to me. She was later married to Lawrence Gowing, who was the principal of the Chelsea School of Art when I attended that school oh, in 1960, 1961. <laughs> oh, what a connection. And he, that was such a romantic story because he was a much younger man and, and, and how they connected. And st- I mean, although they didn't stay together forever, but a, a wonderful a, a cross-pollination and flowering of their lives together. Yeah. He was a wonderful person as well and great to me. So uh, I remember him with incredible fondness. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this second generation of Bloomsbury Group, the group that you're writing about here, did they come together or did they just simply all gravitate toward the older Bloomsbury people and wind up seeing connections amongst themselves? I think 
it, it's interesting to reflect here. Some were friends already, and there were clear friendships groups. So you had a group of young people at Oxford University. You had um, Eddie Sackville West, Philip Ritchie, who was one of the almost an accidental inspiration for Wolf in writing Orlando, his early death. Um, you had Roger Senhouse, who became Lytton's lover. You had a, you know, so you had and Rafe Parcher as well. This group of, of young people at Oxford. You had a, an equivalent group at Cambridge. So, for example, Dady Rylands, and then the psychologist Sebastian Sprott, who was Maynard Keynes' lover. And then you had a, a group of young relations like Julia Strachey uh, and her cousin John Strachey. Um, who sort of knew each other through these these different connections, but then came together and were drawn together increasingly by their attraction to and support from the older group. Although you point out they could also be entitled petty and parochial at times. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I think one of the uh, things that I loved about this, uh, you know, researching for the book is just the humanity of this group of people, because they could be, you know, bitchy and catty about each other. I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf was not above, uh, uh, you know, poking fun in the naughtiest way possible. But I think what is I love is the fact that they could be honest and human, uh, but also intensely creative. And I don't think it takes away from their artistic or literary production, the fact that they could have these um, incredibly honest relationships. And I think often what is missed in in reading what perhaps, you know, typically uh, Lytton or Virginia might write uh, to each other about either their friends or, you know, their old Bloomsbury friends or young Bloomsbury friends, it, it can you read, when you read the, the, the words cold, as incredibly vicious, but it was all done with a sense of humour. Um, and you might be tearing your friends and loved one apart on the page, but you would meet them the next day and you would support them in whatever way you could. Um, and, and I think that's that's you know, easy to forget when you just see that, as you say, the cold letter on the page. Was, were their interests in the arts the thing that drew them together? Or how much was their awareness of their shared attitudes about sexuality? I think that they had a um, a shared sense of what I would almost call iconoclasm in a sense of, of challenging the conventions of the previous generation. And for old Bloomsbury, that was uh, challenging the Victorians. And for young Bloomsbury, it was it was challenging not only the you know the Victorian generation but the you know, the Edwardian generation as well, and they came together in this determination really to um, set out on their own path, whether that was artistically or it, in it, literary outpourings or indeed in their you know public expression, um, and and those things those feelings drew them together. Interestingly, I mean, I think when you, if you think of, of radicalism, probably old Broomsbury had their most uh, public expression of that through um, their uh, conscientious objection to fighting in the First World War. They weren't necessarily drawn to radical politics, whereas some of the members of young Bloomsbury, notably the uh, young Labour politician John Strachey, uh, were much more closely involved in that, in that world of, of trying to campaign for social change. Well, the the members of Young's Blue, Young Bloomsbury 
were some of the stars of the 20s. Uh, they found success as journalists, artists, novelists, poets, and, and even party givers. Um, and as bright young things, they danced onto the pages of the popular press, bringing kind of glory not only to themselves but to their seniors uh, and uh, becoming media stars. But how aware was the public of their sexuality? I think it, it, it is, again, it, it seems to me extraordinary that you have this strange dichotomy, as I say, between the what appears to be, to a 21st century eye, absolute visible expressions of sexual and gender identities through these um, the, the records that are left of these incredible parties. And yet the way that that was not seen at the time. I mean, I think one of my you know, favorite um, uh, events was this extraordinary, the nautical party of, of 1927, which um, the press raved about all the guests who were there. Um, uh, there were obviously there were old Bloomsbury and young Bloomsbury represented in force, and they, they talk about the jolly sailors and sailoresses. Um, uh, and uh, you, Lytton, I think, was dressed as an admiral. Um, uh, Julia Strachey as a, as a, 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 a sailor in in what white ducks. And Raymond Mortimer, the young Vogue journalist, came as a sponge bag after sponge bag trousers. And just even when you hear them writing about, I think, um, Stephen Tennant and Cecil Beaton came uh, dressed in, in pink trousers with their hair dusted with gold. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you read this and you think, how would it be possible not to know? And yet there does not seem to be that ex th those kind of feelings you know, mentioned in, in the accounts. Well, maybe um, they were just seen as, yeah. as kind of eccentric artists or artsy types. <laughs> Yes, um, and I think it did. Well, there was this you know, this strange contrast between how it was perfectly acceptable for um, a, a young man to attend one of these fancy dress evenings, uh, wearing uh, full makeup, lipstick, mm. possibly dressed as a um, a female film star or as a, a foreign queen, and this you could be photographed and written about. But at the same time, if you were doing that on your own, walking down Piccadilly at night, then you would be arrested and potentially imprisoned. Mm -hmm. So there was, this, you know, there were two sides of, of the same card. This uh, coincided with what's called the American Jazz Age. Was there an overlap? Well, there were, there certainly was, and I think um, um, I opened the, the book with one of a, a, another extraordinary um, Bloomsbury evening, uh, which is um, a, a very much a, a jazz age celebration held by two young American women who were in London at this time, 1923. Um, so it's uh, Henrietta Bingham, who was the daughter of a, a Kentucky press magnate, and her uh, professor at Smith, uh, Mina Kirsten, who came from a, a family of Boston department store owners. And they were uh, a pair, uh, young women over in England. Um, uh, were, they were lovers, but they were also looking for, for new experiences in London. Uh, Henrietta was on a year away from Smith. Um, and they, they found Bloomsbury, um, a, a, so a group of people for, with whom they could connect. Um, and they also introduced 
at Bloomsbury to jazz because Henrietta and Nina knew all the um, uh, latest music, the latest shows. And in fact, that evening had an incredible, uh, it was an after party after a show uh, involving uh, performers from the States performing uh, them. So, yes, absolutely. Well, Louis Armstrong was touring and people like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it, it was a, a a a great moment of crossover. And then you know the other um, core uh, crossover between um, Bloomsbury and and the American jazzes was the relationship between John Strachey uh, and Esther Murphy, um, who was the sister of the American artist uh, Gerald Murphy, uh, who was famously the inspiration for Dick Diver in Tender is the Night and a close friend of mm. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. Um, and through uh, Esther, um, John Strachey got to know many of the great writers and, and uh, painters of what I think we would call that the uh, lost generation. So the lost generation is connected to this as well. <laughs> it's, and I have to say, I think one of my moments of, of greatest excitement and also greatest envy uh, was in when reading up on the life of, of John and Esther, mm -hmm. um, uh, where they had their honeymoon at the Murphy's Villa America in Cap d'Antibes, which is where um, Scott and Zelda often used to hang out along with an absolute panoply. I mean, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Dorothy Parker, I mean, you name it, everybody was there, including from the European side, Picasso, Fernand Leger. Um, and I was wondering who Esther and John might have met when they were on their honeymoon in 1929. And I uh, read Scott Fitzgerald's personal ledger. And sure enough, he writes um, that summer he met um, he, at uh, Villa America, um, Murphy's and Strachey's. So, yeah, they were uh, hanging out with, with Scott and Zelda during their honeymoon. What a, a wonderful experience. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Nina Strachey. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a copy of her book, Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom, and self-expression in 1920s England. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate of Large. And thank you so much. And we return to Nino Strachey uh, talking about her book, Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom, and self-expression in 1920s England from Patriot Books. She is also the author of uh, rooms of their own. And I imagine you've also talked about this on the BBC. Uh, now, the difference is the BBC doesn't have to ask its listeners for money 
because everybody in England has to pay a license fee. Does isn't that true? Absolutely, they do. Um, but I feel we're very lucky that we have this amazing institution that allows so much um, wonderful talk radio in in the UK. You write about quite a few people in this book. Uh, in fact, you have pages of, of lists of, of names. There's no way we can discuss them all. And many of the names will be unfamiliar to most contemporary readers. Who are the ones we should be most aware of? Uh, you've mentioned a few. Well, I have to say I have quite a soft spot for Julia Strachey, which is probably not surprising as she's uh, one of my cousins. But I mm. think... She's a, a really interesting figure, and particularly what's interesting is is her relationship with Virginia Woolf, um, which draws out so many um, uh, strands and subtleties in the way that Virginia responded to young people. Because I think there was quite often a, a sense that uh, Virginia was, was really seduced by um, uh, particularly aristocratic young men like Eddie Sackville West, and the um, group of, of genderqueer young men around him. Uh, but she was equally um, attracted to beautiful young women. Um, and Julia was one of those beautiful young women, and um, Virginia described her as a, a gifted wastrel, one of those young people who could sort of turn her hand to anything but actually didn't fix anything. And she was, Virginia was determined to nurture Julia's talent because she knew that she was a writer. She knew that she could produce something wonderful. Um, and there are some great letters where Virginia says that she's been trying to prize uh, the book that Julia's been writing out of her hands, but she's a typical straight she and as slippery as an eel and she can't get hold of it. But she finally does. Um, and this book is called uh, Cheerful Weather for the Wedding, uh, which is a bittersweet novella. Um, that has an absolute tragedy at its heart because you you um, you are taken through uh, a wedding during the course of, of the book where there is a bride who is marrying a rich young man and you might think this is a you know a wonderful happy story uh, but fairly early on you realize there's something absolutely rotten at the heart because the bride is drinking and she spills ink on her dress and she's patently miserable and you discover towards the end that She's only marrying this young man because she had become pregnant with twins by another man who had before and abandoned those babies um, elsewhere in the world. So anyway, this is an absolute tragedy, but an interesting book published by Virginia Woolf through the Hogarth Press, became extremely successful and remains in print today and was turned into a film only a few years ago. So I think that you know, Julia is, is somebody whose talent I particularly like to, to celebrate. You mentioned uh, Eddie Sackville-West, who had a really interesting life. He was a novelist, a music critic, and later a member of the House of Lords, despite the fact that he was known to wear elaborate makeup and dress in satin and black velvet. I have to say I find Eddie one of the most mesmeric young people. And again, Virginia Woolf was equally seduced by him. Um, he was a, a, a very um, slight uh, figure. I mean, he was he was uh, small and thin and delicate, and he had these enormous violet eyes and a huge domed forehead. And he was Vita Sackville West's first cousin. Um, and Virginia really loved the contrast between Vita, 
who had a, in her gender expression she really preferred to ex uh, to express more masculine she whenever she could she was wearing more masculine clothes breeches and long laced boots and she had an alter ego as julian whereas eddie um liked to as vita described him mince in black velvet <laughs> said um and she'd often find him you know with wearing jeweled rings and golden bracelets and he typically would be wearing makeup and eyeshadow and i think what's wonderful about the way that Virginia weaves uh, this character that turned into Orlando, her um, androgynous character that changes sex uh, uh, over time, lives for 400 years, is almost a blend of these two first cousins of Vita and of Eddie. Um, and Eddie, he, he had so many talents. He was a child prodigy at the piano. Um, he wrote um, and published two novels straight away after leaving university. He had wrote a prize-winning biography, uh, and then he became a, a, a widely acknowledged music critic all the time while battling with a, a terrible hereditary disease. It's a, um, a hemorrhagic telejanctasia, which means that you're um, constantly suffering from lesions both on your skin and in different organs within your body so he was racked with pain um anyway as, as you can tell I, I think i'm i'm probably as as um uh interested in eddie as as as, as virginia was um and, and she wanted to support him in every way she could she even offered to read his diaries if it would help him unravel some of his more complicated relationships so he was often popping around with another set of diaries well how did how did he wind up in the house of lords <laughs> well i mean were the sackville yeah. west royalty on some well, level well they 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 um inherited what had been had been a first an archbishop's palace and then a royal palace the house of Knoll in kent which again is um at the center of orlando it's the house that um inspired Wolf to create this, the setting for Orlando and it's probably the largest private house in the UK it has seven acres of roof and four acres of building um, it's said to have over 350 rooms um, and Eddie inherited both Knoll and the ancient Sackville barony um, so he came with this in incredible historical legacy um, and at the time that Virginia knew him um, his his um, uh, first his uncle and then his father was still alive and he was occupying rooms in the gatehouse tower at Knoll. And what's extraordinary when you go there is the contrast between Eddie's rooms, which were painted for him by Duncan Grant while he was in a relationship with Duncan Grant, and they are filled with vibrant Bloomsbury art. Um, and his walls are painted in, in what he called his favourite Mary Laurence pink. Um, and he has musical notes painted on the wall. Um, uh, uh, and it's a completely different uh, and bold modernist interior compared to the ancient rooms of the Sackvilles at Knoll. Wasn't there a backlash? Didn't many members of the older generation dismiss the two Bloomsbury groups as decadent? Well, ah, I, 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 so we're seeing the pre the, the older generation to Bloomsbury seeing yes. decadent. Yes, I mean, it, it, and it's interesting to think of, of even though some of the the older generation might have been gay themselves or yes. <laughs> had complicated yes. lives. 
in it. And it, I, I think it's an interesting reflection on this, um, what can I say, the rolling pattern of what's viewed as decadent in the period, because you have, obviously, there was the decadent movement of the 1890s uh, during the, you know, the Oscar Wilde period. And, and young men like Eddie were seen as reviving uh, what had been um, sort of essentially reviled and condemned during that period, particularly this embracing of of ornament and dress and uh, writers like Uisman and his books, Arabor, and the idea of holding um, uh, dinners dressed in black velvet to mourn your lost allure or having jeweled tortoises and all of that. Um, this younger generation were very much seen as, as reviving that, those decadent feelings of the 1890s. What was it like finding the things that uh, you were able to uh, put into this book? For example, you, you report that when you opened one of uh, the many Strachey books with letters tucked between the pages, you found a series of notes penned to the painter Henry Strachey, Lytton's first cousin, by the art historian and sexologist A. Simmons. He, he was the co-author with, with Havelick uh, Ellis of, of Sexual Inversion. Yes, I mean, it's been one of the, again, an, an amazing journey looking not just at queer history, but the queer history of my own family. And when I say my family, obviously that's Lytton's family too. Um, and here we're talking about Lytton's first cousin, Henry Strachey, uh, who was an artist and an art critic, uh, a painter who ex was trained at the Slade, exhibited at the Royal Academy, and like Lytton, uh, was uh, a, a queer young man at stage, uh, enjoyed relationships with young men, liked to paint young men. Um, and I have many of Henry's paintings today, including a really beautiful picture called Day Dismissing Night, which so is an allegory at the end of the First World War with a naked young man dismiss, mm -hmm. uh, dressed as the sun dismissing the night. Um, and as I say, I, I opened one of the many copies that I have of J.A. Simmons's History of the Renaissance. And in it were these, these letters to Henry and, and J.A. Simmons as well as being an art historian, a sexologist, was Henry Strachey's uncle. Um, and he was writing to his nephew, um, encouraging him to paint um, subjects, particularly of young men. He gives uh, descriptions of how he might uh, paint young men bathing in, in twilight um, and how, thinks that how he, the light might be directed on their bodies, how the... Um, uh, scenery might be laid out and it to, to me I mean these are letters uh, you know written in the 1880s mm. and it seems a wonderful nurturing thing within a family that you could have this you know correspondence between a, a, a queer uncle and a queer nephew helping him to produce queer artwork so long ago. You report that a Victorian doctor once said no straightie can ever go mad they are all too eccentric for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that's probably be fair to say to be true. Um, and certainly there were um, uh, both friends and relations of young Bloomsbury who felt that way. And I remember poor Julia Strachey, um, who was uh, taken in by an American relation um, and who was constantly telling her off for spending too much time with her nose buried in a book. 
uh, and said to her, you don't want to end up all sort of weird and eccentric like your Uncle Lytton. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, you know, that's, a, that's not weird and eccentric. That is wonderful. Um, and I think Strachey's have been burying their nose in a book since the 1600s, and long may it continue. Well, there's a negative side, too. I'll get to it in just a moment. I'm talking to Nino Strachey, whose latest book is Young Bloomsbury, The Generation That Redefined Love, Freedom, and Sex, Self-Expression in 1920s England, published by Atria Books. Um, one of the, the uh, concerning problems to me is the anti-Semitism in the group. Although Virginia Woolf's husband, Leonard Wolf was Jewish, Virginia wrote in her diary, I do not like the Jewish voice. I do not like the Jewish laugh. And Lytton wrote to Leonard Wolf, in which he condemned the, quote, placid, easygoing vulgarity of your race. Yes, and it is, uh, I mean, I think it's a, a sad testament to the times that they were living in, that these would have been typical expressions amongst English people of their background and culture at the time. Um, and it's something that was certainly unsettling to me. I've been involved in a uh, Jewish Country Houses research project, and in fact, I've just written a, a chapter on a female Jewish collector in the, in the 19th century. Um, and we were looking uh, particularly at that history of, of Leonard um, at, at, and Virginia at Monk's house and this um, awkward relationship there was between um, Virginia and Leonard's family and the views she expressed about their family. Um, and also within the Strachey family itself, because um, uh, Lytton made similar remarks, as did Dora Carrington, regarding John Strachey's mother, who had Sephardic Jewish heritage. Mm. Uh, uh, and they remain troubling expressions of the sentiments of the time. And Maynard Keynes wrote, quote, It is not agreeable to see civilization so under the ugly thumbs of its impure Jews, who have all the money and the power and the brains. And he, he said about Einstein, he's a naughty Jew boy covered with ink, that kind of Jew. I'm not exactly sure what that meant. I mean, Einstein <laughs> was a pretty incredible figure. <laughs> Absolutely, and undoubtedly. And I think, I think it is, well, what can I say when we look back from a 21st century perspective and see the way that people in, I mean, it, it very times from here, but I mean, there were a generation who were mostly born in, in the sort of 18, um, sort of 70s and, and, and 80s, uh, and they were expressing the views of their time, uh, but also um, obviously having long and close and life affirming relationships and admiring relationships with friends like Leonard. Um, and so there is this horrible dichotomy between those expressions and and the ways that they then follow through with their personal friendships. We have uh, only a limited time left. Aren't you the mother of, of a young adult who identifies as queer and non-binary? Absolutely. And it's been a, a joy for, for them and me to really to explore the, the queer history of our family and to really to find so many affirming um, examples of queer heritage, not just within our own family, but across the wider Bloomsbury group. And I think that is something that is so important for 
young people today um, to really uh, to have that understanding that queer history has been with us forever. It's constant. It's not something that's new um, in terms of either you know sexual expression or gender expression. Um, pan trans identities are are timeless and statistically remain continuous. And to be able to celebrate those examples, particularly when they are so evident with your own family, is also affirmative to those who are growing up today and might be experiencing uh, prejudice, which sadly still remains. And uh, that is a big issue, although there have been many advances in LGBTQ rights and visibility. Uh, we are still seeing people battle over it and uh, laws being proposed. Um, so your book is about uh, a period from the 20s in England. Uh, what happened? Did uh, things ease up in England for a time or did they just return to the old ways? Well, I, th I think what what I feel sad about in in you know reviewing history is obviously what the period I've been writing about is a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. and you see a group of people who are living uh, very much as we might hope, whether it's in the UK or in America today, uh, a group of, of queer young people finding uh, support amongst a, a group of accepting adults, um, and yet history doesn't necessarily go in a beautiful continuous line um, of improvement. You see um, uh, changes and setbacks, and even in the lives of the people that I'm writing about, they were having this wonderful time in the 20s. But you get on to the 30s and you see the rise of fascism within Europe. Um, you see particularly repression uh, in Germany and even, you know, obviously elements of repression from a conservative government in the UK. Um, and so you see... Today there was a news report about an, uh, plans uh, by a, an ultra-right group in Germany to effect a coup <laughs> and get rid of the, the democratic German government. Uh, I, I mean, this is the, the, the tragedy of the cyclical nature of history. Each time you think you're moving forward, then suddenly, almost like a, a wave, you mm -hmm. can go backward again. Um, and again, I think this is why it's so important to celebrate positive queer histories, to show that good things have happened in the past and hopefully can continue to happen in the future. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, my guest has been Nino Strachey, Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom and self-expression in 1920s England from Atria Books. Anything you want to add? No, Lennon, it's been fascinating. We've covered so many areas. Well, you have lots of characters in this book that we could not discuss, all really interesting. And uh, I recommend the book to anybody who's interested in not just the history of um, intellectual thought uh, over the, uh, the last hundred years or so, but also uh, attitudes about sexuality and how they've changed over the years. Thank you again. Thank you. Great to speak. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. 
Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep this station coming to you and the show coming to you as well. We are asking all of our listeners to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI. Dot org or 212-209-2950 because right now uh, BAI is behind in both its studio rent and the, the rent for its broadcast tower and we want to we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Young Bloomsbury, The Generation That Redefined Love, Freedom, and Self-Expression in 1920s England by Nino Strachey. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable supporting us with. It allows us to plan for the future and know that six months from now, we'll still have some money in the bank. And we will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope that you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Lender Thopit at Large, why not give us, uh, uh, let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And uh, we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Emily Flitter, who'll be discussing her new book, The White Wall, How Finance Bankrupts Black America. It's the kind of thing we do regularly on the show, topics that are really important and yet uh, don't get much in-depth play. And we hope you appreciate that and will help us by supporting the station. We'll see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.